Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, what is astonishing you this first week in August? Uh, Listen, Sunday, I walked into the sanctuary, and one of our hardest working, kindest uh, elders was in a near panic because nothing was turning on the light except mm-hmm. for the lights. Uh, none of our audio visual equipment was working. I mean, it wasn't even getting power. And uh, she said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but nothing is working right mm-hmm. now. And so we're, we're talking about 45 minutes before worship, you know, which gave us a little time. But uh, then it was 30 minutes before worship mm-hmm. and then 15 minutes before worship mm-hmm. time and things were still not working. And I was trying not to panic, but I was, you know, I was working mm-hmm. on plan B, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, this might may be acoustic yep. worship Sunday. Yep. And uh, we share space with uh, another congregation, a Spanish-speaking congregation, and um It just turns out she made a call to them and said, do you guys know what's going on? And they had changed some things, and um, we needed to, there was one flip, one switch we needed to flip. And so uh, things came on maybe about 10 minutes before worship. Oh, my gosh. So there was relief, but by that time, you know, you're just kind of, (laughs) you're you're thrown off a bit. And you're not, um, you're not settled in your spirit. You're not focused on the people coming in, coming into worship, you know, I, I like welcoming and smiling and greeting people and being very present in the space, especially, you know, as an introvert, I, I really work at um, having, you know, some face-to-face time and yeah. just just being present with people. And I was not there. I was physically there, but I was a million miles away. And so we, we, we worshiped and... Um, I struggled to get into worship, and that says nothing about our worship team. They do a wonderful job. Um, and at the end of worship, I was just feeling um, like, I, not that I had failed, but that I hadn't given my best. Mm-hmm. And um, I really, I wanted a do-over. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm packing some of the uh, camera equipment up, and uh, you know we've we've recently hired a new worship team, and part of that team is uh, a young Liberian man named Eddie, who plays the drums. And as I was packing the camera, Eddie came to me and he said, "Pastor, I really want to thank you for last week's sermon." Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh," he's like, "Yeah, it really helped me understand the Trinity." It's like, mm-hmm. I did not talk about the Trinity <laughs> last Sunday. No. And I said, well, oh. well so, uh, okay, you, you have my attention. He's like, um, you know, you were talking about the supremacy of Christ in Colossians. And um, he's like, I, I, th- I think I got it now. It's like, I was wondering why God, the Almighty, needed Jesus. Why does God need a son? And he says, when you talked about um, Jesus being the image of the invisible God, it just clicked for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I got it. And he said, last week I was with a group of guys and they were um, saying, you know, Christianity is, is false. It doesn't make sense. And Jesus, what is that for? And he says, I just talked about your sermon. <laughs> and he said, I want you to know that after we play music, when you see me go sit in the back, 
I'm sitting in that place because I feel like I can listen to you in that spot. <laughs> and I thought, what an incredible mm-hmm. gift on a day in which I, you know, I just felt crummy about my quote unquote oh, performance. Yeah. Yep. And on the one hand, I felt, um, I felt like I needed to repent of my pity party, mm-hmm. but also, um, even more, I, I was just grateful for this moment of grace. And I felt, uh, the Lord saying, you know, you are, you're just doing the work. It's not, um, it's not flashy. It's not, uh, it's not going to be accompanied by, by mm-hmm. fireworks every Sunday, but just keep doing the work. And I was encouraged. Um, and, and Eddie, um, that moment was just a real gift. And so yeah. that, that's, what's astonishing me this week. I mean, it's so funny. Um, and I think this is one reason that, that it is maybe useful to do this podcast and talk about it. Cause it's just such a weird, um, life to pastor a community. It's so weird because I remember, you know, as an undergraduate, I, um, I studied science, but I also studied music and I was a vocal performance person. And, um, we would talk about how it was different, um, for vocalists than for instrumentalists, because when you are being evaluated as a musician and you're an instrumentalist, there's a physical object in between you and the audience or the judges or the professors. And so they're evaluating your ability to play this object. And, but when you're a vocalist, it's you, I mean, it's your voice and it's your ability to sing, but it's just you, there's nothing in between. And so it's not personal, but it is personal. And I think it's so, um, helpful to sort of have walked into this life already thinking about just sort of that that strange um, reality of what you are what you have to offer which is true for anyone in any space and place and vocation always I mean all we have to offer are ourselves but it's just more visible in this life and um, and it's so hard to sort of both Obviously, you have you you want to care. You have to care. It has to be not quote just a job. It has to be personal. And also, you have to have a healthy detachment and be able to say, "Hey, this really isn't about how I feel uh, at any given moment, and it's really not about how people feel about me personally." I'm not trying to become a star, right? right? And also, like sometimes being faithful means you need to be honest or um, truthful or take a position that is um, not harmful but painful for people. And so you you have to be able to be okay if people, um, you know, are not, are not feeling it or are not, you know, are, you know, it's just, it's hard. It's just, um, and it is funny that you, I mean, we, before service started, probably about, I, I mean, I get here real, I'm famously late to everything, but on Sunday mornings, if I am not on campus at 7 a.m., like we worship at 10, if I'm not on campus at 7 a.m., I'm like, I'm squirrely. Like, I just need to be here super early. Um, and I think it was about 
um, we showed up and I mean, I think there was a big storm. There was a big storm Saturday night. So we showed up, we had no internet in the whole building. Um, we had youth coming home from a conference and a bunch of them got COVID. So people who were going to play a role in service were, you know, texting to say, I can't be here. I can't be here. You know, it's just, I, I, um, I did not have COVID. I had tested myself, but I did not feel great. And, um, it was just like a, just a combination of things, like nothing was working. And I, at one point, I just, I texted a fr- my friend Kim in the congregation. I'm like, look, I need you to pray for me because I am closer in than I've ever been in my entire life to just like walking out the door. Like I just can't, I, I cannot, I have, I just was not. And she's like, do you want to talk? And I was like, nope, <laughs> I do. I just, I need, um, I mean, because, you know, sometimes you can know you know what you know, but you still feel what you feel. And Absolutely. just knowing that you, quote, shouldn't feel a certain way doesn't mean that you don't. And so it just was a like such a hard morning here, too. And I think um, that's just not, you know, normally. That's almost never my experience. Um, and just sometimes, like, the work is hard. And it's not because, I mean, it can be hard because you're doing it wrong. I'm always open to learning that I'm doing it wrong, but sometimes it's just hard because it's hard and it's not because you're doing it wrong. And, um, it's really nice when you get these little glimpses, it's, it's humbling and encouraging when you get these little glimpses of like, Hey, on your best days, on your worst days, what we have to give is in us, but not of us. And so, you know, you just, it's great when you're feeling yourself. Um, and also, when you're not, as they say, God can be God all by himself, all by, all himself. by herself. Right. So, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, so I you feel my deeply pain. Relate. I can <laughs> so deeply relate. It was just a, it was a very intense, very, very, um, challenging weekend. Yes. So, so what's astonishing you? Well, so here's the other reason that <laughs> Sunday was hard. So on Saturday, um, we had a, he's already laughing just in case you can't hear that. Um, we had a, um, um, a, mem- a memorial service here at the Grove and a family who's just a, um, what, who I've known for a long time and care very deeply for. Um, and um, the, um, a woman who is a member of the church, her father, who I've met, but, uh, you know, don't know, but he had died and the family reached out to say, to see if I would do the service, which of course, uh, you know, of course I will. And they, you know, everything is so weird, um, with COVID. I just, I haven't seen them a lot lately. And, and, um, they, I mean, she said, you know, I feel bad that I'm calling you just because of this. And I'm like, you don't need to feel bad. Like, this is why you have a church. This is what you do as a pastor. This is not a quid pro quo transactional relationship. Like, of course you should call your pastor when someone has died. And of course, I, I'm honored to be able to accompany you in this. Now, this particular family, um, is, um, they're a black family and the parents are all immigrants. So both sides of the family are connected. And, um, so 
the father's parents are from the Congo and the mother's father who had died was from Sierra Leone. So I'm just saying that there are layers of culture all around the table that I am a white um, mainline Protestant. I'm talking to um, an African-American woman about a service to celebrate the life of her father, who is a Sierra Leonean American, and talking with family members who are, you know, like there was a nephew who is living in Switzerland, and there are people from the Congo, and just like a, um, I mean, a really beautiful multiplicity of people coming from very different places with very different cultural experiences of worshiping Jesus and trying as a pastor to to show up to serve this family without any preconceived notion of this is what this service has to look like. Like, I we want to give thanks to God for the gift of the life of the person who died. And I want to... Um, announce the good news of the promises that we have in Jesus in the face of death. And there's just a million beautiful, faithful ways to do that. And it does not need to be a service that is comfortable or even familiar to me. Like my job, I think, um, and I think every pastor's job, but especially a pastor who is called and trying to be part of a healthy and a holy multi-ethnic community and multicultural community is to show up and just really not make assumptions and um, be really aware of, you know, when you find yourself thinking like, we need this to just take a beat and think, okay, but why do I think this? And is there another way? And, um, you know, like a an example um, and nobody... Nobody report me to the Presbyterian police. But an example is the um, the funeral home brought the body um, of the person who died into the sanctuary, and the casket was open before the service. They had time, the family came in, and just the casket was open. And in our polity, one of the very few explicit commands is you must close the casket before the service starts in the book of order the, okay, in the book so of order talking about the casket being open it was during, open during the service well i'm saying we were getting ready to start the service and the casket was still open and i walked to the you know i'm in the back mm. of the sanctuary and i'm like huh um and so i walk over to the funeral director who i who i do not know and just said you know hey are you planning to close the casket and he said well um, normally we don't. And I said, okay, well, normally we do. Can you ask the family, um, if they have a really strong preference to have the casket open, then that's fine. I'm going to defer to that. I honestly, for myself, think I agree with the, the rule of the PCUSA I think that there's, um, it makes sense to me that that moment of closing the casket is gut-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. 
And I think it is helpful to have the worship service and all of that consolation and the music and that like it's helpful to have that afterwards so that you know so that you're comforted in that moment yeah part of our theology of a funeral service is that uh, we acknowledge the reality and the pain of death and I think closing the casket symbolizes that right and so but I also just feel like you know what this is a family who's lived experience and culture I mean a is not even uniform within the family but you know if the wife of the man who died if she's not ready to do that I just feel like the law of love says it's okay you know it is okay like this is not this is not going to undo the resurrection of Jesus Christ like I don't need to impose this on them um, as far as I can think I can't you know I can't recall a chapter and verse of scripture that says thou shalt right although I mean I will say the the directory of worship for the PCUSA does have very few direct Mm -hmm. imperatives and that is one of them so I think just an example like that of just sort of trying to understand that we we do have some directives and and a lot of them I think really do make sense and still if you're if you're going to have a healthy um, multi-ethnic community, you don't just say like, well, we're closing it because I said so because I represent the people. I mean, like that is not, I don't think that's faithful. So, I mean, anyway, the funeral director asked the family and they said, no, let, let's close. They, they did close the casket. But I thought for me, the faithful posture was to say, hey, I think this is our custom and here's why and also... I'm, I'm going to support you as you choose. Yeah, and that that really may be a cultural thing because it's it's been my experience um, just about my whole ministry, especially serving historically African American congregations, that the casket is open, and the closing of the casket signals, oh, the service is about to begin. Right. Well, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But I think they were going to keep it open during the service. Got it. And so, anyway, it's just an example of how. It, you just have to be really thoughtful and intentional. There's no other way to love people except to really continually be asking yourself, I know what my intentions are, but I want to be as best I can trying to think about how might this be received and not to guess, but to just ask. And I think when I sat down with this family to plan the service, it's always um, just a really tender moment to plan those services with grieving people. Um, And frankly, I think in general, just in 21st century America, most people feel very much at sea when it comes to death in general and the death of a loved one. And there's, there's some ways that I think it's really helpful for a pastor to come alongside and say like, Hey, there's a, there's a way that we do things here. And, can I, you don't have to sort of create this um, from scratch, but also understanding that I think it's our job to be responsive, and so not just sort of saying like this is this is the way, and I'm imposing it on you or whatever. And the challenging thing, um, finding that balance is challenging. I think even when it's a not a cross cultural 
situation. But then when you add in sort of white people and black people worship differently and white people and black people customs surrounding death are very different. And then when obviously American and other nations and, you know, obviously Africa is a continent, not a nation and different people. I mean, like there's just a lot of people bringing these, you know, invisible expectations and experiences. And there's just not a, you know, there's not a normal, there is no normal. And so it was really interesting during the week, like I was really um, just struggling to figure out what the family wanted and needed from me. And the other thing that I think is really hard, and I, I wonder if you see this too, is that, you know, what families say to me a lot as they're trying to put these services together is they just get bullied by funeral homes, right? That funeral homes and hospitals and other people and just maybe they intend to, maybe they don't intend to, maybe it's just whatever it is, but like I would say nine out of the 10 families that I meet with feel just raw and bullied by the people they have to deal with in response to death. And so I'm really trying not to be like that. Like I'm trying to be the one person who's saying like, hey, you you have some control here and I'm going to defer to you here. And anyway, so we're putting the service together and I'm asking questions. Usually when I meet with the family, I go with a blank order of service. I says, let's, let's talk about this. This right. this is the go- we Correct. are going to create this service. Correct. Which is what I do too. I say like, here, here's a way we can do it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this. And if you want to make any changes, like, we, we can. Um, and this particular time, sometimes you're talking to the people who could meet with you, but there are other people who can't be in the room and they have to be consulted. And it's just, there's a lot of ambiguity. And um, normally, ambiguity, navigating ambiguity is one of my real strengths as a pastor. Um, but there was just a lot, even for me, it was just a lot. And so I thought I understood the assignment. And they had sent me an order of service and they had included some scripture. And I was like, all right, this is the scripture they want me to preach from. And that's the other thing, sorry, not to belabor things, but the other thing that's hard is all these people who come from these different cultural expressions of Christianity, we use the same words, but we often mean completely different things by the same word. And so it's very confusing. Like when I'm talking about a eulogy, I would mean... The sermon. I mean, honestly, I, w- I personally would call the sermon the sermon and the eulogies the tributes or the memorials that people That's ask. That's interesting because I... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just totally us, it's different. different. Yeah, and, right. I, and I think part of that is like just over the years, it's just, I mean, but technically like eulogy being the good word, like I think about like, oh, this is the person and not the the proclamation is is about the gospel. And I really prefer for a service where the family and the friends who knew the person directly, you know, they give these remembrances and then that frees me as the preacher to just in a specific and non-generic way to talk about the gift of God that was this life and the promises of God to this person. And um, so anyway, I'm looking at the order of service and and it has scripture on it and they're going to have remembrances. And I'm like, this is great. I know what to do. I'm going to I'm going to write this sermon based on who I understand this person to be, given the stories that you told me. And I mean, I called you on Saturday morning and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about this and what are you like, is this whatever. And it was all good. And so then we're in the service and 
Um, I feel a particular, I mean, just real talk, when I am the white preacher in a, in a congregation of people of color, I feel a real responsibility um, to exceed expectations, right? Because I... Wait. <laughs> that, wait, that was such... That was such a nice way of saying what I think <laughs> you wanted to say, um, which was you don't want to be the white woman that preaches a bad sermon. Well, yes, I don't. I don't. And I honestly, I know that a lot of people are coming from places where women in general don't preach and right. people have experiences and expectations of white pastors not being very passionate or proficient in preaching. And so I just, and I care about this family. And so I just want to give the very best that I can and not this family in particular, but any family, but you just want to bring your best. And as opposed to a Sunday, like every Sunday morning matters to me, but there will always, you know, when we say on a Sunday morning and we talk about this a lot, like just having a Sunday afternoon, like hangover, which is not alcohol related it's like shame over like you know when you're just like oh god like oh and it's all ego and it's but it's just real right and and one of the things we say is like you know what six days right six days and I get to do this again and that's really encouraging but when you are getting ready to do a funeral service that is it there will be people in the room that you may never see again well Yes, but I am confident that that the Lord can minister to those people in other spaces. But I'm just saying, this is the worship service Mm -hmm. that celebrates this person's life. Yes. And there will not be another one. And there will not be a do-over. And so it's just very sacred to me, that responsibility of like, it just matters a lot to me. And and so I, I always... I mean, I always want to do my best, but I really, really want to do my best. There's just a lot going on. And so um, the service has started, and there's remembrances. Well, and can I just add one thing? Yeah. That you're, you're focused on preaching John 14. Correct. In, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Yes. Yes. I just wanted to add that. And so, and I'm focused on, like, understanding from the stories that I've heard about the man who died, who I had met, but I didn't know, like, just how... Because I don't ever want that service to be, that sermon at a funeral to be generic because the promises are n- of God are not generic. They are specific. And I think for grieving people to hear like this promise is for everyone, but it's particularly relevant for the specific loss that you are suffering. And so the remembrances are happening and there are five people who are going to speak and, um, one video that's going to be played and I have no idea if that's going to work. And anyway, I'll, uh, whatever. And so the first person comes forward to speak and he begins by opening his phone and reading John 14 in my father's house. There'll be many rooms. And then he does not do what I thought he was going to do, what I understood people in that section of the service were going to do, and what the people after him did, he does not say, you know, this is a favorite scripture, but here's what I, you know, here are my stories and here are my, like, he preaches a sermon. He preaches a good sermon. (laughs) But it is the text, 
and that I had and your, studied your mind, and prepared to. Yes, your mindset is this is my assignment. Right. That was what I, that is all I had prepared to do. And so then we're in the middle of the service and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like uh, my name is, I have the last piece of the worship service and my name is in the pro like I'm gonna it says sermon and I don't I mean what am I gonna read the same scripture and then pretend that that guy didn't do that am I gonna I mean I think it's really wrong as a preacher worship leader to ever like pull back the curtain and say like well I'm sorry I thought or there must have been a music you know like you just you gotta like be a grown-up and I'm like I am gonna have to preach a different sermon um and during the service like you know pulling out my phone and trying to pull up <laughs> another text and just be like I don't know what to do but I can't I mean I have to say something and I cannot say what was in my notebook and I just you know you're just sitting there and honestly in that moment I just that's my nightmare scenario I was gonna say, I've actually had thoughts of that very thing happening to me and it is it's a nightmare. nightmare scenario it's a nightmare and in front of a room of people that you don't I don't even know them and in a time when there's not going to be a next Sunday right and I can remember in seminary my preaching professor Anthony Campbell who I just loved so much and is in the church triumphant and he was such a um, gift to be his student but he would say to us look like you are going to be pastors and you need to be prepared that a day is going to come when you are going to walk into a room and they're going to look at you and say you're the pa pastor come give us a word and you have to be ready mm. and i was just like today is the so day <laughs> <laughs> so i was astonished and you know, it's just, I mean, again, like just the whole tenor of the conversation is about like how personal this work is. And also it's not about your ego. And also, you know, it's not about people leaving and saying like, oh, you're a good preacher. I mean, it's not, it's not about that. And so you're just like, all right. I mean, all I can do is stand up here and do my best. And so what text did you use? I'm curious. I, I used, um, John 12, I w was using Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And um, when he said, I, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Although it was so funny. I was in such a panic that I was like, I looked it up on my phone to check that that's what it was. And I'm like, okay, this is it. And then I'm just sort of thinking. And then I get up and I read it. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, wait did it say that? Like I couldn't, like I just read it out loud and I couldn't, I mean, you just, you know, sometimes you just can't, you can't think. And I'm like, well, I mean, whether it's said it or not, I, you know, anyway, it just was, um, it was, I was astonished. It was and a rough I, day. And then <laughs> that was Saturday. And that was Saturday. And, and then, then you went into Sunday. Sunday and, and the internet working. was broken. I mean, yeah. nothing was working. Wow. And I was just like, yeah, I just need, I need a vacation to <laughs> I just, I have, um, which I'm close to vacation, everyone. I know last week I was on here sounding really pathetic. Like, I'm fine. You, no, I don't you need a telethon. I'm really okay. I'm just sounded tired. And I'm yes. not even that tired anymore. But I just, um, summer is a really beautiful and intense season here. And I'm so thankful for it. And I get to the end and I'm like, okay. Like, I, you know, 
I, I need a break. I need to tap out. So, and I'm going to very soon. So that was what was astonishing me. And I really hope that now that that has happened one time, it will never ever happen again. Next time you'll be prepared because this is what you might want to do. This is what you may want to do. Um, I have two or three sermons that I've just emailed to myself just in case. Really interesting. Just in case I'm in a situation and I'm worshiping in a church or I'm attending um, a service someplace and the, the, the preacher who's supposed to preach is uh, delayed or in an accident or for some, you know, missed their flight. And they said, we, we need someone to preach. Yep. Some, and I, I can pull those up on my phone. Um, Here's the thing. Like, I, I, I think two takeaways. But one now I'm going to add funeral sermons. <laughs> right. Well, I think one thing is if I could have just left the room for five minutes. Like that would have helped a lot, but I think part of what I what was so hard is I was up, which I'm not even normally like this, but I was just up on the platform as I was realizing this, and so I just um, that that was challenging to me for some reason psychologically. Well, and then I first, you also have to like settle in with okay, this is happening, right? And then the second thing is okay. What's plan B? Right, right, right. right. That, that takes a minute. Well, and I think, I, I think the other takeaway for me is I was trying very hard not to be imposing on the family. I was trying really hard to be open to and responsive to what they were hoping, hoping for and imagining. And I was trying not to ask them too many, quite like just to pester them with questions. So I, and I think... One of the takeaways for me is like, hey, actually, um, moving forward, you probably do want to have a follow-up conversation the day before if you if you still have questions, which I did, just to say, hey, here's here's what I think is happening tomorrow. Can you please like help me understand? Because I think if I had said, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that was the plan all along and I just misunderstood from what they sent me. It could have been that I just didn't understand when they sent me the order of service that they always knew, like, oh, no, Uncle so-and-so is going to talk about this at the beginning of the remembrances and then you preach a sermon on whatever you want at the end. That could have always been the plan and I just misunderstood it. So I think... And because John 14 is such... um, um, a commonly used scripture in funerals, it could be that this person already had in his heart and mind, oh, when it comes to this particular service for this particular man, I'm going to talk about him in relation to John 14. And I love this. And so he just already It could have just happened naturally. That's right. And honestly, I could have just been overthinking it in my chair, right? Like it would have been fine just to stand up and read. and. I mean, like I, I just, I just... Was this, I mean, literally, this is the yeah. what astonishes you text. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, I, I, we normally don't have one worship service with two sermons preached on the same text. And I just didn't know what to do. Yeah, because in retrospect, um, now that, you know, I've had a couple of days to think about it as well. Yeah, because I one- called Yolanda right away. <laughs> like, I was in my car driving to the, the graveside to do the graveside service. And I called him and was like, you will not believe what has happened. Like this was my nightmare that I just lived out. Um, So yes. In in retrospect, um, 
you know, one option, uh, and I'm, I'm following this away for myself, just in case this ever happens to me, is to um, move forward with, you know, what you prepare to s and say something like, you've already heard this text wonderfully read mm -hmm. and um, proclaimed, and I would like to add to. Right. 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 Um, but in the moment. In the moment. I just panicked. Just, yeah, I just, it's yeah. really hard and again, like normally I'm pretty good at just like shoving all my feelings to the side and just focusing on what's going on. And, um, but there's just a lot. And I think that more that day too, there were just a lot of technical things. Like I do think that that is maybe something that people don't realize is, you know, the tech stuff is just psychologically really challenging. Like it takes a lot of energy and it just, well, it adds a lot of stress when you're like, well, oh, a video is supposed to play and I don't know if it's gonna. You've got the technology side, but also, and you mentioned this already, navigating all of the cultural stuff. Right. And I've been in spaces where, you know, I'm, I am the only African-American in the room right. at a funeral and it's my job to... Uh, both officiate and preach, and it's it's very real work to navigate the space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is, and and just you can't read the room as easily as you can when the people that you're serving. Well, and also, and and you you touched on this as well. You know, as a woman, as an African American, you. Um, whether you want to embrace this or not, whether you want to think about it or not, you represent something in the minds of people. Sure. And there, there's, there, there's always um, the heartbreaking possibility that you might um, confirm right. someone's right. stereotype. Right. 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 And so, th right. and that is. That's mental, emotional, spiritual right. work. So then when you have a moment of, oh, no, this person is preaching my, right. doing my assignment, you, your, your, your brain is already going in a right. several directions right. with technology and right. culture. And so you don't have as much bandwidth. Yeah, you just don't have as much more. Yeah, because I, I think that that's the hard thing is like for me, and I know I've said this before on this podcast, um, that that ministering to grieving folks is just one of the, m I, I just think is the most sacred part of the calling to be to be a pastor. Um, and it's often the least visible. And it's just, I, I mean, I don't want to say it's the most important to me, but it's kind of the most important to me. And so it's just, if there's ever a time that you really want to be at your best, and so it's just... Um, and again, like, I, and then I think like, just to relate to where you were at the beginning, like a lot of it is just, you recognize like, Hey, this is not about me. And emotionally it's feeling a lot about me when none of it is. And just, and also I just can't have this like wrestling match with my ego right now. Cause I, you know, whatever. Um, but yes, yeah, so that was the experience of life on Saturday and, it, it was intense. It was a tough so weekend. It was, it was, a, it was intense. It was an intense weekend. What are you thinking about? Well, um, the other day I was going through my YouTube feed. You know, the YouTube algorithm suggests videos to you. And most of the time I really don't like what they suggest. But uh, one video caught my attention and uh, it was a, um, like ABC News clip. And it was a story about 
um, um, the dwindling number of nuns, Roman Catholic nuns mm -hmm. in America. And um, I, I don't know why I was surprised by this, but um, the average age of a nun in the it's U.S. Like 72 it's, it's, or it's something. It's 80. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's 80. And um, by 2030, maybe 2040, they're estimating that the number of nuns will be just a couple of thousand. Um, and right now, today, it's down 70%. I think there are 42,000. Um, and it was much higher at one point. And they're thinking that, you know, in a couple of decades, it's just going to be a, a handful. And that very few young women are becoming nuns. And so, of, of course, that got me thinking about the church in general and um, why younger people are turning away from the church and the faith, um, but specifically about um, nuns. I've only, none, I've only known one nun in my life uh, when I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and just asking myself, well, why? A couple of things came to mind. Um, one, very easy, I think uh, young women have um, more options in terms of career. Um, um, also, uh, the sex scandals in the church that have been talked about so much recently. But uh, this video, this news piece brought out something I just wasn't even aware of, that there is uh, now, uh, wh what's coming to light, um, sex abuse by priests and bishops um, mm -hmm. against nuns. And I I just wasn't even aware. Mm -hmm. and, and these women are telling their stories uh, of abuse. And again, shout out to Pope Francis, who has been meeting with nuns around the world. Um, and um, uh, also there's this history of basically nuns being almost like the, the servants of priests yeah. and like um, and, and Fran I heard Francis say you have not been called to be um, uh, the, the, the maid of the, the, the bishop right. and uh, I again was just totally unaware that this was happening and so uh, yeah I, I've been thinking about uh, nuns Roman Catholic nuns well let me just tell you what I think about that at the risk of saying things that um, I haven't had a chance to think through and that are um, potentially explosive. Um, I just think there's an elephant in the room when we have this conversation, and that is that the, the Roman Catholic Church is explicitly and unapologetically patriarchal. Mm. And that it is the explicit teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that men are ontologically superior to women. Um, women can make the same vows as men in the church, but they, I mean, the fact that they were abused is tragic. And also, I don't know how you wouldn't predict that a, that a culture that is predicated upon the submission and inferiority of female to male would create a space where men would see 
women in religious orders as objects, objects. Uh, you know, and I, I, I understand that I live in a glass house, that I serve a church that is patriarchal as well. And I don't mean specifically the Grove, although like white supremacy, like the um, hierarchy that ranks male as ontologically superior to female is just in the air we breathe. It's all around us all the time. We're all navigating it all the time. And even if we reject it with every fiber of our being, it's still consciously and unconsciously shapes the way we live and move and have our being. And so I just, you know, part of me, I think it, I know for sure that the Lord um, has been um, inside um, the Roman Catholic Church. I know for sure the Lord has used um, the Roman Catholic Church. I know for sure that when women and men make these vows to God that they're beautiful and sacred and the Lord uses them. Um, and I just, I think there's something really holy and beautiful and profound about people of both genders making a vow at like Paul talks about it to, to remain unmarried and just to pour out their lives in not just to pour out their lives in service to community and God and have this particular um, calling to singleness. I think that's so beautiful. Um, but I think within this patriarchal hierarchical construct, um, it's just dangerous and it's just poisonous. And that's not to, you know, I, I also exist in constructs that are dangerous and poisonous and I know the Lord needs us there, but I just, you know, I, I think it's easy for everyone to be like, Oh, you know, that's so sad that young women don't want to do that anymore. And I'm like, I mean, a young men don't want to be priests anymore. So it's not completely, um, it has a gender component on the other side as well. But I just think, yeah, if women are saying like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make the same sacrifices and the same whatever, and then just be completely, have my wisdom and my gifting be completely shut out and subjugated and mediated through others simply because of the perceived fact of their biological gender. Like, I'm not signing up for that. Like, I don't think, I think that the Lord is still calling people to singleness, but you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just have really complicated feelings and I will just say, um, the scholar and I'm going to get her name wrong, but I think, I think her name is Beth Allison Barr, although it might be Allison Beth Barr. And I think the book is called the making of biblical womanhood, but she talks about, yes, she talks about how we as Protestants tell this story about how you know, the women religious pre-Reformation that there that was just restrictive and it was hierarchical and women were controlled under the thumb of men. And then, you know, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses and his very pretty wife, Katie, got to live this free and full life and no longer controlled by this institution, blah, blah, blah. And, and what the, um, what Beth Allison Barr writes is, look, the actual history is that women pre-Reformation 
had much more freedom from the patriarchy because pre-Reformation, the women religious, it was just understood very differently and and there really was the ability to transcend the um, expectations of femininity because you were not going to be anybody's wife or anybody's mother. And so you, you sort of lived in this uncategorized space, which gave women a lot of um, sacred freedom and sacred authority. And the Reformation, which we've been taught to see as this like magical, like, mm, um, jubilee moment of restoration was actually a moment where women were told, no, 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 there's no path to you for you to have, you know, leadership or authority in a religious community. Like you are all of you called to wifehood and motherdom and that's your role and you don't have any other. And that was just a really paradigm shifting moment for me because I really um, just uncritically accepted that oh everything that came after the revelation after the reformation was more freedom and and more um you know a, a more truthful expression of the church and and her work pointing out that no actually um there was loss as well as freedom and that actually the church pre-reformation was really defying cultural conventions of patriarchy and it was post-reformation that the protestant church started conforming to secular patriarchy and saying no women are called to this and any woman who doesn't go down this path is defective or secondary or suspect and so you know i i I mean, there's just a, a tenderness to, I think, how that's a piece of a larger whole that's sad. Um, but there's just a part of me that it's like, I just really can't, I, I, I really can't cry over the fact that this institution, which has baked in this foundational idea that women need to be under the control and authority of men, I can't cry crocodile tears that people aren't interested in being a part of that, even though I can have a, a ton of reverence for women who made that choice. And frankly, for, for men who tried to show up and be as faithful as they could in the systems that they were given. Yeah, so much of my surprise comes from a lack of knowledge about um, the Roman Catholic Church. And my thinking that uh, when someone becomes a nun, you enter into a convent, and that in, in my uh, imagining it, that it is really a, uh, a cloistered existence. And so I, I just wasn't aware of the, the proximity of, of nuns to priests and bishops, that nuns were you know, doing translation work and uh, writing papers, and then some bishop or priest would get the credit. Just, mm -hmm. I, that's just, I, I always understood, misunderstood convents to be almost um, a separate institution with, with its own, um, not just structure, but agency mm -hmm. that, um, almost had a, a kind of um, um, a, a fence of authority around it. And that, that's yeah. just not the case. It well, does have its own internal structure, but it is much more under the, the patriarchy than, than I, I 
realized. Well, I mean, I think, and we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, like there's just a big difference in the church that the modern day Roman Catholic church would claim as its sole antecedents, but the church pre-Constantine and post-Constantine. And so I think, you know, there were spaces and places where that was true. And then there was a great like pulling back um, when, you know, when the church no longer became the enemy of the imperial state, but became the official imperial religion. And then it needed to conform to, um, and you know, the, the, the hope was that the church would transform, which of course it did, um, the imperial culture, but also the imperial culture transformed the church. And so, and that's just the story. I mean, it's the story of the promised land, right? It's this negotiation between like you're in this space. And so you are having influence and you're being influenced and, it's, um, you know, it comes with with danger and cost. And yet, you know, the church exists for the world. And so, you know, it's not as if there is a call to go be the church on some other, you know, spectral plane. Like it's it's for, for the earth that Jesus came and for the actual world that we are called to be church and all the mess of that. So... So what are you thinking about? Um, I am thinking about um, just lately because of a lot of stuff that's happening both in my community and on a personal level. Um, I'm just find myself in a season again where I feel very much like um, Peter. And in fact, a, a, a friend at the Grove sent me a text on, on Sunday after worship and, and said, um, that I, that I remind her of Peter stepping out of the boat, which I just deeply appreciate because I really, really identify with that story just in all of the like complexity. So for people who don't know, Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus and he was sort of a self-appointed leader and his greatest strengths were also his greatest weaknesses like he was passionate and he was impulsive but he was also um just courageous and he and he really went for it and sometimes that was beautiful and sometimes he just biffed it hard in front of everybody and he just um you know (laughs) Um, he went, he went for it. You have to give him that. And, and there's something just really beautiful in that. And there's something just really embarrassing about that. And, um, and I, in this season really so much feel this deep identification, both as a pastor and just as, as a follower of Jesus, um, that I'm in this season of wanting to step out of the boat and knowing that I'm not sure whether this is really what I'm called to do or whether this is really an ego move or really a faithful move and knowing that I um, just intrinsically don't have the ability to do the thing that I think this next season I'm I'm being called to do and knowing that the reality is so, so I'm sorry, I keep saying I'm going to tell the story and then I don't. So Peter is one of Jesus's disciples and there's a day when the disciples are on the, on the, oh, not the ocean, on the lake, the sea. sea of Genesera, is that right? And, um, 
they're there alone and a big storm comes up and um, Jesus walks out on the water to them. I might be conflating two stories here, but the important thing is they see Jesus walking on the water and they, at first they're scared and they think he's a ghost and then they see it. And then Jesus says like, Hey, it's me. Hey, you beautiful dummies. It's me. And Peter says, if it's uh, you, if it's you, let me walk on the water too. And Jesus says like, come on, come on, get out here with your bad self. And so he steps out of the boat and he does it. And he does. And I I think he's really feeling himself. Ask me why I think this. And then um, all of a sudden, he starts to sink. It says he he sees sees the the wind and the waves. waves, Right. And he starts to sink. He panics and he starts to sink. And um, Jesus reaches out. and says, Lord, save me. (laughs) I'm glad one of us has read the Bible. (laughs) This is really helpful. And and Jesus reaches out and and pulls him him up. And he... um, and I and then Jesus says, like, keep your eyes. I think on they me. get back in the boat. Um, gosh, and I should know what happened. Jesus said something after that. That's bad. <laughs> this is why. This is why you should never Two apologize to a, a pastor walk. and be like, "I'm sorry, I don't know it." Like, we don't. We have Two to preachers take a walk and, and can't remember. Try to a remember Bible scripture. Study. Yeah. But but the point is, um, you know, when you take a, a step of faith. Sometimes you end up stupid and wet, lo- you're like stupid looking and wet, right? Like there was a moment, I, I think in that story where he's the one who steps out of the boat and everybody else is in the boat. And, you know, and you can tell, you can look at that story as a call to like, just get out there and have amazing experiences. Or you can look at that story as like, why did he have to be such a show off? And I, I think either way, the point of the story is, Jesus saves us and Jesus loves us and um, Jesus meets us where we are and, and it's, we don't have to, it doesn't ultimately really matter whether Peter walks on water or whether Peter sinks because Jesus is Lord either way. And I think um, that's maybe the through line of this whole conversation is like some days as a pastor, you just, you're really feeling yourself and you just feel like, Oh man, like I kept my I'm eyes on you, this. Jesus. And like, this was a really amazing experience of like being part of the holy. And that's a great feeling. And there's other days and you're like, man, I am a fool and I look like an idiot. Yeah, and this sinking. is embarrassing. And, um, and the reality is it's not about us and we're not here to look impressive. And the Lord can glorify himself in our successes or in our failures. And, um, but I do think sometimes our desire for dignity is greater than our desire to follow Jesus. Mm. And, um, I think sometimes, you know, you just really are called, I'm never called to be unfaithful, but I think sometimes we are called to be faithful in a way that's not safe and not certain. And sometimes I think you do step out of the boat knowing that you might be wrong and knowing that you might end up like publicly all wet and, and knowing going in that if that happens, I'm not going to be ashamed to tell the story that I thought this might, I thought this was what Jesus was calling us to do. I think I thought this was what Jesus was calling me to do. And turns out I was wrong. And you know what? That's okay. (laughs) Because um, the central truth of my life is not, look at me, look at who I am. 
um, the central truth of my life is look at Jesus and look at who Jesus is. And, um, and I think, um, I was listening to somebody in the congregation who I love and just deeply, deeply respect, um, speak on Sunday. And he was saying, Hey, if we only ever do the things that we know we can pull off, um, then we're not partnering with God in ministry. We're just doing our own thing. And, um, you know, sometimes being faithful means not being certain if you can bring a thing to completion, like not be like starting something and knowing like, Lord, if you don't show up, we're in big trouble. And that vulnerability is just so hard. Um, and that lack of control is so hard. But if we only ever do what we are reasonably sure we can pull off. That takes no faith. Well, and I also just think it just it just limits in a lot of ways what the Holy Spirit is able to do mm-hmm. in our midst and in our lives and how the Holy Spirit is able to use us for the sake of the kingdom, right? Because we, we won't get out of the boat. And so um, I just think um, I've been thinking a lot. And again, like... So, a, a lot of this is, is stuff that's happening in my congregation, but a lot of this is, is stuff that I'm just personally wrestling with as a disciple of Jesus is that I'm just in that season right now and it's really uncomfortable. And I also know that if I turn away from it, um, in the short term, that's going to feel good. And in the long term, it's gonna, it's gonna be bad. And if I push through this discomfort um I'm there might be some really painful days ahead of me but um ultimately like we sign up for pain and we sign up for uncertainty and we sign up for sacrifice and that reminds me of Jesus call to Paul um when um Paul was converted on the road mm-hmm. to Damascus and Jesus showed up to Ananias, a follower of Jesus and said, okay, I'm going to, you're, you're going to go to this place, to this street, and you're going to minister to Paul. Um, cause I've called him. And then Jesus said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just think, um, you know, Jesus is not Red Bull who gives us wings. Like, we are not, I mean, no apologies to Joel Olstein. And actually, I, I, I'm i not going to smack on Joel Olstein because I appreciate that he's trying to encourage people, and that is godly. But we're not called to live our best lives. We are called to live a cruciform life, which, before it's beautiful, is brutal, Um and I think that's just something that the mystery of the cross is something that we um, don't often know how to understand outside of the context of like an oppressive colonial patriarchal structure that says the cross is, you know, get in line and sacrifice for the powers and authorities of the day. But when we're really well, saying... Well, it was, it's, you know, um, I think our our imagination about the cross has been shaped by Constantine who mm-hmm. when he was going out to battle I think he had a dream of 
of, of a cross or heard a voice and it said, by this sign, conquer. And it was the cross. Mm -hmm. And so he went out to, to conquer um, by the symbol of the cross. And we think that, oh, uh, the cross is to help me uh, do my thing. It is Jesus comes to support me in my mission. It's that bad um, reading of Philippians 4.13. Like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we think that all things is everything I want instead mm -hmm. of the all things. And the truthful reading is the all, all things that God calls me to do. Yes. And that we are called to be more than conquerors. That doesn't mean uber conquerors. It doesn't mean we're the like what, what, the MCC. Like what are the fighters? Like the like the Oh. <laughs> what are those people? The ultimate fighting champions, the UFC conquerors, right? Like we're the ones who are going to be like, really like we'll rip your teeth out with it. No, we are called to be something more than a conqueror. We are called to be one who is willing to lay down our lives in order to love and save our enemies. And we are the ones who in our lives bear witness to the fact that there is something more powerful than the threat of suffering, sac suffering, sacrifice, violence, or death. More powerful than that is love. And we've and been trained to think of the faith as something that is always ego affirming. Mm -hmm. And the faith is something is something that always makes us triumphant. And I think it's interesting. There's a um, I follow Shane Claiborne on social media. If you don't know who Shane Claiborne is, he's worth a follow. He's a a member of something called the Red Letter Christians community and he um and and he is part of an intentional community in philadelphia which i think is a modern um really faithful um interpretation monastic. of a monastic life right uh, and he's married and lives in this community with his wife but they they are they are radically committed to the gospel um in in this community and they are they work as peacemakers in their neighborhood and they don't really have possessions and they, they just live a radically alternative lifestyle. And he, a friend of his who I did not know died this week and he was sharing, um, some of what this man wrote. And I'm sorry, I don't know his name, but he was talking about, look, the problem with most peacemakers is like, we, we just think that like, Oh, we're not going to do violence. And that's it. Now we're peacemakers. And he was saying, no, like you're not a peacemaker unless you are willing to suffer as much to end violence as other people are willing to suffer to through violence, right? So people who go off to war, they are willing to lay down their lives to achieve whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And some people are really sincerely trying to achieve good through violence because that's how the devil convinces us. But a lot of peacemakers, a lot of people who know that violence is not... Um, does not create life and does not create peace, but we're not willing to lay down our lives to make peace. And he was just saying like, look, you have to be willing to wage peace as sacrificially and intentionally with as much cunning as people are willing to wage war. And if not, you might be a lot of things, but you're not a peacemaker. Like this is not going to like spontaneously happen when, when people turn their swords into plowshares that's going to be a choice and a plan. And, you know, it's anyway, so I, um, I'm sorry, I just lost the thread. I don't know what I was even excited about now. <laughs> Stop talking. I'm still tired. It's still the end of the summer, friends. I'm in, in September. I'm going to be smarter. So what are you preaching this? I have so no idea. You have no idea. Done. Move. Okay. Next. <laughs> a parable. I don't know.
I'm sorry. He's laughing too much to talk to you all right now. And I just appreciate <laughs> that just my real um, lack is just funny to my friend. He's just laughing. Listen, um, if I can say anything about you, um, I, <laughs> no, I mean, please I can don't. say, no, I can say can a lot say of, anything about I, me, no, please I don't. Any, I, you know, one, one of the good things I can say about you is that you are, you know, you're willing to be vulnerable and, you know, like Peter, yes, you're willing to go for it and look a little, um, or a lot. You, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. I'll, yeah. Anyway, what are you preaching about? I'm not sure, but, uh, this morning, See, I look was at me. Reading, I'm not laughing. Uh, <laughs> it's cause you are much more mature than I am. Um, I was reading through the lectionary text this morning, and um, one of those texts is Hebrews 11, uh, the faith chapter, and um, mm. just sitting with that, and, you know, I, I, I think I read it last week or a couple of days ago and thought, mm, uh, I don't know if I'm called to preach on that, but I was thinking about it today, and um, um, for the first time, I, I noticed... Um, Sarah's name in the in the list, and I've I've never noticed that before, um, um, uh, and so uh, I'm thinking about preaching that, but it, I'm, I haven't settled on it yet. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm. If we I'm weren't sure recording would, the podcast right now, I would make a joke, but I'm not going to make that joke because we are recording podcast, and okay. it's possible that there are still two or three people still listening at this point. So. <laughs> so go on. You didn't notice Sarah's name. Go on. Tell me more. No, I I, I did notice that. Um, because um, often when I read Hebrews 11, I read that first verse, you know, faith is the evidence. The substance faith is of, the substance right? of things hoped for, the evidence of things and not it, seen. And it's just, it's... It, Look it, at me it, talking it, Baptist. Know, to you. You're welcome. Uh, it becomes, you know, a laundry list of names. And I have to confess that often when I read it, I, I just kind of, I, I mean, I read it, but I'm, I'm glossing through. I don't I don't really soak in it. And so it's like, okay, a list of names. All these people were faithful. And I I just kind of go back to that first verse. And so today, as I was reading, when it said, you know, um, gives a name and how they walked by faith, I would read that verse and just pause and think about that person in Scripture. And I've never really done that because it's, it's a pretty long list of names. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and I just read the first 11 verses, and I think there are five names, five people listed. And um, that was a really helpful exercise. But again, I'm not sure if I'm preaching that. I'm, uh, I'll be interested to have a conversation with you about the parables and see how... Are you thinking, like, Sarah, because she's someone who's sort of walked by faith kind of in spite of herself? And, like... Well... I mean, like, um, why did her name strike you in particular? It's because uh, when, when you read the text... So um, I think there's there's Moses and then there's Abraham and then when the text talks about Abraham, it's a it's a it several verses I believe. Look, I have and a then, Bible right here because I'm says, a real Christian. And, and Sarah, <laughs> um, oh. and, and his smoking hot well, wife Sarah, well, and his lovely wife Sarah. And when, hmm. when you think of Sarah, you think of the if story you think where of Sarah. A- Abraham says, you know, where, where God says we're going to have a child, and Sarah laughs and. Um, but the, the text says that, that, that Sarah believed it was by faith she believed the promise to have this child. Um, and as I remember the Old Testament story, it didn't give that sense. All I remember is that she laughed when she was told. But uh, in the book of Hebrews, it's no, she, 
she had faith. She believed. And so... Um, it is interesting how, you know, and I, I, um, how difficult it is to separate what you've always thought about a text from what a text actually says yes. or what you've been taught about a text from what it actually says or the translation from the original or the tradition that surrounds the text from the original. Because, I mean, the idea of Sarah laughing, we just assume is a sign of disbelief. Yes. And it says a lot about and so it could, how we think so, about faith. So I'm thinking about going back to that Old Testament story because now that I think about my own life, sometimes when something is ridiculously good in my life, it makes me laugh. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, this is so great, so fantastic. It moves me to laughter. It's like, oh. So, yeah, there is like a reinterpretation for me, uh, and maybe others have understood, you know, the Genesis story differently, but um, for me, it's like, oh, the laughter, I assumed that the laughter was, um, okay, this is, this is preposterous, and no, this isn't going to happen, but Hebrews suggests, no, that it was a sign of her faith. Interesting. Well, and I think, like, what is interesting, too, is so often we in America think of faith as like this project that we undertake and we work hard on it and we sort of construct it for ourselves and then we get graded on our, you know, science fair project. <laughs> as opposed to, I, I think the witness of scripture clearly is that God gives people faith right? It's not something that you earn. And Romans says specifically, like people get different measures of faith and God doesn't judge people on the basis of the amount of faith that God gave them. And so it's interesting how much, you know, when, when we feel like faith is a, a project or an assignment or a requirement or a duty, laughter seems contrary to it. Whereas, you know, if faith is just a one more manifestation of the grace of God, God who, who gives um, freely what we don't earn, then, then laughter is a really beautiful response to that. Um, I, I really, you know, would seem easily associated with faith that like, of course we would laugh when God shows up with delight, like not with, yes. yes. So um, anyway, well, that's interesting. Let me know how that goes for you. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if that's what we preach this Sunday. Hey, thanks for listening. And um, if you want to find out more about what Derida does this Sunday or any Sunday, um, check out their website at um, www.deridaprez.org and um, check out the podcast, the Derida Prez podcast on the Podbean platform. And you can find um, Yolando's uh, back catalog of messages, which are definitely worth a listen. Um, and you can check out their YouTube channel and um, experience worship there, or you can join them in the sanctuary at 11 on Sundays. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can check out our website. It is thegrovecharlotte.org. It has a green tree. And you can check out our YouTube channel or our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get our podcast. You know that we, our podcast is not on Spotify. We need to fix that. Somebody wow. was looking for it on Spotify and they were like, it's not here. So 
So, so there you've you been go. Saying wherever. No, I've been saying that the Grove podcast was wherever. I'm talking about this. You and me. Oh, this us, podcast. This two pastors take a walk. Someone was looking for us. Well, I yes. Wow. Okay. I know. All right. Sort of. It's a long story. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to keep talking, but you're not going to keep listening. So we'll we'll talk to you later.